You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, Right now, though, we should get into a Bible study. Amen? Uh, It is a privilege to be able to open God's Word, and let's do so together. Let's open up to Genesis chapter 12. And if you need a Bible, the ushers are in the aisle. And if you don't have a Bible, let me tell you, you need a Bible, right? So raise your hands. You'll enjoy the study so much more with a Bible in your hands. We are going through the book of Genesis verse by verse. And today what we're looking at is an interesting chapter on Abram's life. Uh, Here's what we've covered so far. Uh, We've looked at creation and all that God did, making the universe and giving it to man and making man for himself that he might have fellowship with God. But man continues to go in rebellion against God. God brings judgment on the earth, even in the form of a flood, and man still comes out of it in rebellion against God. The Tower of Babel, uh, God scatters the languages all over uh, because of man's rebellion. And in this idolatrous state, uh, man scattered all over, all the different nations of the earth, all the different dialects, uh, in that state, all of them leaving Babel, Tower of Babel, they're practicing pagan activities all over the earth. God reveals his further plan of salvation. I'm going to call one man to myself. He's a pagan. He's he's an idolater. God did not call him because he was good. For there are no good men. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God called him because he sets his love on us. And his desire is to redeem us. And he calls this man, his name is Abram. And he calls him to himself. And he makes the Abrahamic covenant with him. His purpose is to call him to himself that Abraham might experience the deep and intimate relationship with God that God created man to have. It's why God created you, to have a close, intimate relationship with him. And out of the abundance of that relationship, God invites us then to participate with him in building the kingdom, in being a light to the rest of the world in leading others to the same love that transforms our life. And uh, this was God's doing. Uh, It is uh, called the Abrahamic Covenant. We looked at it last week. And just as a way of review, uh, let's go over and let's look at just a a quick flyover of the promises that God made. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, are you there? Uh, Verse 1 says, uh, now the Lord called Abraham. He tells him, get out of your country, leave your family, leave your father's house. The reason his father, his country was idolatrous. He lived in the Ur of the Chaldees. It was a pagan nation. His his dad, his parents were pagan. They were worshiping other gods. Uh, They were a, a, uh, you know, they had a pantheon of gods that they worshiped. And uh, they, he says, hey, I want you to leave all that. God does the same thing in our life. It doesn't matter uh, how, how messed up we get. Uh, we might be idolaters. We might be uh, 
loving money, materialist. We might be uh, full of anger and rage. We might be alcoholics or drug addicts or sex addicts or homosexual or whatever. Uh, and God says, hey, I want to call you to myself. I want you to know me. I want you to experience my love. And I want you to leave that sinful life. And I want you to come and follow me. And that's what he has done with Abram. Again, God did not call Abram because he was good. God called Abram because God is good. And he calls him to himself. And look at these promises he makes with him. Leave your father's house and go to a land that I will show you. And here we see the first promise. Uh, God says, Abram, you're going to have a homeland. You're going to have a promised land. That land is the land of Canaan. It's also known as the promised land. It's also known as Israel. That's a permanent land that God gave to Abram, to the Jewish people. This is yours. The next promise, he says, I will make you a great nation. And he has the nation Israel. Today, they are a great nation. They are a miracle. Separated, uh, scattered all over the earth in AD 70 and brought back into their homeland. Once again, just as God promised, 1948, May 14th, 1948, God brings them back into the land and already they are one of the most powerful nations on the earth today. God keeps his promises. I will make you a great nation. Uh, I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. God promises to make Abraham's, na <laughs> Abraham's name great and the Jewish people's names great, and that has happened. Abraham's na name is great. I keep saying Nate, name and great put together, Nate. Uh, Abraham's name is great in Christianity, in Judaism, in Islam. He is the father of faith. Uh, the Jewish people, a great name. Uh, they are the most wise, most profound. If you look at all they have done, if you look at them uh, per capita, they have won more Nobel Peace Prizes, more advances in science, more advances in medicine, more advances in agriculture, in arts. It doesn't matter. Across the board, they truly are a great people. It defies logic. God keeps his promises. I will bless you and make your name great. Uh, the next promise I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Uh, the next promise is a promise of divine protection. Divine protection against anti-Semitism. You see, the very day that God made a covenant with Abraham, a spiritual battle began. There is an enemy who wants to annihilate the Jewish people. Because if he can annihilate the Jewish people... This covenant is broken, God's word is broken, and Satan can reign. And so there is a spiritual force behind anti-Semitism. It is the reason that Iran wants to blow Israel off the face of the earth today and are hell-bent moving forward at getting nuclear weapons for that very purpose. It's not even a secret. They're open and public about it. The this is the protection that God has. Knowing that the enemy would want to destroy this covenant, God says, I'm going to put divine protection on you. And we've seen throughout history, this is true. Any nation that has gone against Israel, rather it be Spain, Babylon, the Assyrians, uh, the Romans, uh, Germany in modern day history, all, yeah, across the board, across the ages, 
This has been true, divine protection. I believe the United States has had a lot of divine protection on us and blessing on us because we've been supporters of Israel. Uh, the last blessing he gives is that in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a, a, a lofty promise. How in the world can that be? That in one man, Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed? Seems impossible. God fulfilled that promise. God brought Jesus, the Messiah, through the lineage of Abraham, through the lineage of Israel, into the world, and all people are blessed. All the nations are blessed because of Jesus. Galatians makes it very clear that this promise is about Jesus, and it was fulfilled in the work that he did for us on the cross. It was also fulfilled in the nation Israel as they were to be a light to the Gentiles, that the rest of the world would see this nation called by God, and they would say what is written in Deuteronomy, who are these people who are so wise, who have such amazing teachings and statutes uh, from God's word, that they would thrive in their families and their businesses and all that they do, who would have God so nigh to them that they may ask anything of God and he would do it for them. Uh, who are these people? And it would bring others into the knowledge of the true and living God from a pagan world. So this was God's desire for the nation Israel. Uh, this was God's desire for the man Abram to make him into this great nation. And he would be a light to the world. Uh, and uh, uh, God is doing this work. But here's the problem. Abram is young in his faith. He doesn't know God well at this time. In chapter 12 where we are. And uh, today we are going to see Abraham stumble in his faith. The title of the message is Abram's Lapse of Faith, and uh, today we will see him stumble. By the way, a little disclaimer, uh, Abram's name is changed to Abraham by God later in the Bible. I will probably mess up about 40 million times today and call Abram, Abraham. Uh, cut me some slack, it's the same guy, and um, uh, have, have mercy on me that way. Uh, so let's jump into our text where we left off. We left off last week on verse 9, so we'll pick it up in verse 10. Uh, now there was a famine in the land. Are you there with me? Now there was a famine in the land. And Abraham went down to Egypt to dwell there. For the famine was severe in the land. You might want to underline those words. The famine was severe. This was a really bad famine. And the famine was severe in the land. What land are we talking about? Canaan. Another synonym for Canaan? Israel. Another synonym for Israel? Promised land. Interesting. A famine in the promised land? Verse 11. And it came to pass... When he, Abram, was close to entering into Egypt, Abraham says, hey, I'm going to go down to Egypt, see if they have some food there. Uh, when he's close to entering Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Guys, here's some good tips on Father's Day about how to be a good husband. Baby, you are stunning. You are attractive. What a beautiful woman you are. You, you just love you, right? Uh, really good advice from Abram. Uh, interesting, by the way, because Sarah, Sarai 
is 65 years old at this time. Still a stunningly beautiful woman. Now, her lifespan was longer than ours. She's middle-aged right now, uh, and she's stunning in beauty. Um, now, we saw Abraham, really good husband tips. Guys, here's what not to do. Uh, <laughs> verse 12, therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Very interesting, by the way. If we stop and pause for a moment, we see something here. That in the nation Egypt, even though it was a pagan nation, even though they worshipped many gods, Ra, the sun god, uh, Sen, the moon god, but a lot of different gods, they still know in their heart that adultery is wrong. There is something that is called the moral law. And it is given to every man. Intrinsically, because we are made in the image of God, we intrinsically know that lying is bad. That cheating is bad. That stealing is bad. That taking another man's wife is bad. And here we see a pagan nation, and they still have God's law written where? On their hearts. The Bible calls this the moral law. And it is one of the greatest proofs against evolution and for the cre uh, that, we, that you were created and made in the image of God. There are many proofs, but that's one. It makes no sense. If evolution was true, lying to advance yourself would be a good thing, right? And a lot of things. I won't go into all that, but you get the picture, right? And here, even a pagan nation knows that this is wrong. And it's been true throughout human history. We know that it's wrong to take another man's wife. What else has been true through human history is that kings think they're above the law. Unto thee, but not unto me, right? And kings throughout the ages would do something if they wanted a wife. They knew adultery was wrong, so they think they're above the law. They would kill the man and take the woman. And Abram worries that this is going to happen to him. So he tells Sarai, his wife, look what he says. Um, verse 13, please say that you are my sister, that it might be well with me. And you might want to underline this. This is hilarious. That it might be well with me for your sake, honey. I'm doing this for you. Uh, I wrote literally, ha ha, in my Bible right there. That it might be well with me for your sake. Whose sake was this for? This was for Abram's sake, right? Uh, but he says, hey, that it might be well with me for your sake and that I may live because of you. Let's unpack some of the things here and let's kind of look uh, deep into the text here. Uh, the first point that I would like to bring out is worthy of some pondering. And it's uh, actually kind of two points crammed into one. It's simply this. Life is hard, and God is peculiar. Life is hard, and God's ways are peculiar. Uh, look at this now. Uh, Abram goes to the promised land, and there's a famine in the promised land? What the heck? Let's think about this together. God calls Abram, a pagan, totally unworthy, 
And God says, I'm going to bless your socks off. Interesting. Even though I'm a sinner? Yep, even though you're a sinner. I'm going to bless your socks off. But I want you to leave your homeland. As I mentioned, it's because it was a pagan land. God always calls us out. He'll save us in whatever sin we're in. But he calls us out of it. He says, now follow me. I want you to go to a land that I'm going to take you to. And so Abraham leaves the Ur of Chaldees where he was. And he goes to the land of Canaan is where he's supposed to go. But instead of going to Canaan, we read in chapter 11... He goes 610 miles up to the north to a place called Haran. Now, the promised land was 610 miles from the Ur of Chaldees to the west to, you know, Israel area, the promised land, Canaan. But instead, he goes up to the north 610 miles to a place called Haran. And some scholars say, well, that was a trade route. And because his company was so big, he went that way. Uh, It wasn't disobedience. He was just going the long way around. Okay, even if that was true, and I doubt it is, but even if that was true, he stays in Haran for a very long time. And he just flat out disobeys God. Furthermore, he takes his father with him, who was supposed to leave behind, and he takes his nephew Lot with him, which he was supposed to leave behind. And there in Haran, disobeying God, what does God do? We read it last week. What does God do? Pours out abundant blessings on him. He gets really wealthy. He gets all kinds of workers for his company. He increases in every way, silver, gold, livestock, animals. God blesses him abundantly. So blessed, they don't want to leave. He stays there until his father dies. When his father finally dies, he says, I guess I should go to where God told me to go. Interesting, by the way, we looked at this last week, his father's name, Terah. It means delay. (laughs) Disobeying God calls a delay in God's best for our life. And when Terah finally dies, Abraham then goes and makes his journey down to Canaan, the promised land, to the future Israel. And when he gets there, it is not what he expected at all. You would think that the red carpet would roll out. You would expect it to be beautiful fields and green meadows and just waiting for him. He gets there and what does he find? There's people there, and they're not good people. And he gets there, and he says, Lord, am I in the right spot? And there God speaks to him the second time. Abram, you're in the right place. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to keep my promise to you. And Abram there, he pitches a tent because God hasn't given him the land yet. And he's dwelling as a sojourner as he goes through the land and he pitches a tent and he waits for a homeland to be given to him and now they're waiting in the homeland that he's waiting for living as a pilgrim god brings a famine to the land what the heck you would think if abraham went to haran a place where he wasn't supposed to go in disobedience and God blessed him immensely, you would think he would get to the promised land and there would be 
a pot of gold and leprechauns and rainbows and thunderbolts and all kinds of wonderful things, right? Just jackpot. And yet, that's not what's there. Life is hard, and God's ways are peculiar. There in the promised land, Sarai is still barren, and now there's a massive famine. What is going on? What the heck? Fake religions will tell us that if you are in a famine, or if you are in a dark place, or if you are going through hardship, it's because you have done something wrong. It's because there is sin in your life. And I want you to know something. That is not necessarily true. And Abraham's life proves that positively. Now, there are times when because of sin, we bring tremendous hardship on ourselves. No question about it. Because disobedience, we bring really difficult seasons into our life. No question about it. But that is not always the case. And by the way, the oldest book in the Bible, what is it? The oldest book? Job. Job. The oldest book in the Bible, the first book of the Bible, was written to prove this point as false. Job was a righteous man who went through incredible hardship. And all of the counselors that came, all of his friends that came to give him counsel said, Job, you've sinned big time and that's why all this has happened against you. And none of it was true. And God rebuked Job's counselors. Uh, so uh, we know that uh, sometimes difficult things happen even when we're in the center of God's will. If man had authored the Bible, God's people wouldn't face famines. God's people wouldn't face droughts. God's people wouldn't face dark valleys. Uh, if, if man had authored the Bible, it would look something like this. You become a Christian and all your problems are solved. You live happily ever after, right? But I want you to know something. That is not real life. And churches and religions that teach that are just childish. In real life, there are feasts and there are famines. Life is hard. And sometimes the hardships can seem overwhelming. And they do to Abram right now. In the church right now, uh, you know, uh, there's some people going through extreme hardships. And I'm walking with them through that in life. They are losing loved ones. They are going through hard times. There are times when we go along and we think, you know, uh, and life just changes in a moment. A company gets sold. And now your career, you're 50 years old, you're 60 years old, and you find yourself having to start all over. And you're wondering how you're going to make it. You have a child that goes sideways. You have a, a problem that comes in. Uh, uh, you, you go to the doctor and, and just everything's fine. You're going for a checkup and in one day, your whole world changes. You find you have cancer. And now you need chemotherapy and now you just know everything is going to change. This is a fallen world. And there are dark valleys that we all must go through. 
And no one gets through this life unscathed, not even Christians. Life is tough. And God's ways are often peculiar. But he is in all of this. The skeptic does not think so. The skeptic mocks. The skeptic jeers. And he says, hey, if God is good, then why would you get cancer? If God is good, well, why did this happen to you? Your God's not real. And in general, the skeptics say something like this on your screens. I'll read it to you. Uh, But think about this. If God is good, he would wish to end all suffering and hardship. I mean, he wouldn't want people being hungry. He wouldn't want people suffering if God was good. If God is almighty, he would be able to do whatever he wished. But suffering and hardship do exist. Therefore, God either lacks goodness or power or God God lacks both, or God's not even real. And this is phrased in a lot of different vernacular, but this is a common debate among atheists, right? And uh, we could do a whole sermon series on this subject, and it would warrant it, but let's at least address some of the basics. Uh, This logic is severely flawed. Uh, It just might be that the world is more complex than that and that God is way above that and things are more complicated than that pea brain little trap that we set right there, right? Uh, Let's look at a couple things. What if we applied this concept to parenting? How would that go? Uh, Mom, Dad, if you were good, you want to ask me to make my bed. You want to ask me to eat my eggs before I eat my pudding. You want to ask me to pick up after myself. You want to ask me to brush my teeth. You want to ask me to do my homework. If you were good, you would just let me play. And mom, dad, if you, were, if you really loved me, right? Now, let's just walk that through. If you give a child everything they want, how does it turn out? We know from parenting that some hardship is absolutely essential to a child's well-being. If you give a child everything they want, how happy are they? I can answer that firsthand. I was in Target this week. And there was a child who got everything they wanted. And let me tell you who was happy. Nobody in that family. There was screaming and whining and crying and just like, uh, nobody happy. Uh, If you give a child their every whim, not only will they not be happy, but how productive will they be? How educated will they be? How well-adjusted will they be? How healthy of relationships will they have? How, how, How much will they contribute to society? 
Will they be a giver or will they be a taker? Will they be able to have a successful marriage? And we know the answer to all of these questions. And we know that some hardships are essential to our personal development and well-being. Perhaps God knows what he's doing. Amen? Amen. Secondly, let's look at this from God's perspective. If you became a Christian and then you had no more problems, all your problems would fixed, what would happen in the world? What would all the population do? Become a Christian because they love God, because they love themselves, and they don't want to have any problems. And so it is impossible for God to have a meaningful relationship with us simply by eradicating our problems. It would do the exact opposite. We would be spoiled brats, and we would not have any intimacy with God. There is an anonymous poem that I really enjoy that deals with this subject, and I love the fact that it's anonymous. And it talks about God's dealing and how he makes a man. Uh, look at this poem with me. Um, I'm going to read it to you, but I'd like you to really meditate on it as we read it. Uh, it will go pretty fast, so put your ears on and really let this sink in. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man, and skill a man. When God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part. When he yearns with all his heart, that's with all God's heart, to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. Uh, that is a worthy of a lot of, of meditation right there. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes. How he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Or in other words, God knows what he is doing. God uses different trials and different hardships in our life to build us, to mold us, and to shape us. And here, under trial, Abram stumbled in unbelief. And he goes down to Egypt during this famine. The famine was severe. Why does he go to Egypt? What's he hoping for in Egypt? Food. Why would Egypt have food in a famine? Why? Well, they have the Nile River, a huge, massive river, a fresh water supply, and they have advanced irrigation, and they can grow food when other nations are in famine. And so Abram, being a smart man, says, hey, I got an idea. We'll go down to Egypt. And what's interesting is that sin always begets more sin. Abraham should have stayed in the promised land. 
But he sins. He, he laps faith. And he goes and he goes down to Egypt to get food. And on his way down to Egypt, a thought pops in his mind. They're going to kill me. I mean, my wife is gorgeous. And they're going to kill me to get her. Now, you would think Abraham might say, you know what, honey? This was a bad idea. Let's stay in the land God set us in. But that's not how we work. When we sin, it begets more sin. And what he does, instead of getting on the right track, he says, I got an idea. I know we're on the wrong track. Now let's tell some lies to cover the wrong track that we're on. Isn't that interesting? And he says, say that you are my sister. Now, technically, she was his half-sister. Same father, different mother, right? Uh, technically, right? But let me tell you something. She may have been 50% of his sister, but she was 100% his wife. And can I tell you something? A half-lie is one of the most dangerous kind of sins you can possibly tell. A half lie is worse than being an alcoholic on Skid Row. A half lie is incredibly dangerous to our soul. Can you tell me why? Because it deceives us. Who are we really deceiving when we tell a half lie? Ourselves. There's an interesting verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. And it says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Anybody here say they have no sin? Raise your hand. I didn't think so. But can I tell you something? There are a lot of us here in this room who are saying we have no sin. Abraham was saying, I have no sin. This isn't a lie. And who was he deceiving? When we do not take ownership for our faults and failures, we are saying we have no sin. And God says, listen, if you would judge yourself, you would not be judged. And if you say that you have no sin, you're just deceiving yourself and the truth isn't in you. But if you confess your sins, I'll be faithful and just to say no problem. I'll cleanse you, I'll wash you, and lead you in all righteousness, right? Uh, so this is a very dangerous sin to be in. It is one of the most dangerous. What's also interesting to consider is Abraham really didn't need to worry about this famine. He could have been in total rest, just trusting in God, because God made a covenant with him. God gave him some big promises. Abraham, you're going to be a nation. Is Abraham a nation yet? Nope. I got no worries, man. Pharaoh can't kill me, because what would that do to God's covenant? It would break it. There's no way God's covenant's going to be going to be broken, I've got no worries, right? He should have just stayed in the promised land and God would have taken care of him. I want you to know that you and I have been given a ton of promises. 
But if we don't focus on them and know them and hold them in our heart, we too will forfeit promises and have needless worries and stresses that cause us to start doing self-preservation and start lying. Start doing things that are against God. And it is a wise man who knows God's word and holds on to the promises that are there. And here's a question for you. When trials come your way, what looks bigger in your eyes? The trial you are facing or your God? Your trial or your God? To Abraham, taking his eyes off the promises of God, his problems look bigger than his God. And therefore, he has a lapse of faith. This crisis of faith came because the problems that he was facing looked bigger than they really were. Because his eyes weren't on the promises that God gave him. You see, Abraham's, excuse me, Abram's household was quite large. By the time we get to chapter 14, we see that Abraham has 318 trained servants, trained soldiers, Trained military men, 318 trained military men, and the Bible says that were born in his house. In order to have that, you would have to have at least a company of a thousand people, and that's in chapter 14. If now he only has half that, and he probably has more, he would have 500 people in his company. And this famine that he's going through is severe, and it's threatening his family, his company, his business, his savings, his life's work, everything that he has. The problem seems big in his eyes. Uh, Abraham is worried about losing everything in this famine. And so he takes all of them down to Egypt. By the way, uh, if you're a Bible scholar, you might want to make note of this. Uh, no extra charge, by the way. Egypt in the Bible is a, uh, a type, is a picture of worldliness. Worldliness. It's a picture of trusting our own abilities or the world over trusting God. And anytime God's people go to Egypt, it's a picture of trusting man's provision over God's provision. And it's always a snare. Uh, going to Egypt was a smart move from a worldly perspective. But it was a failure in Abraham's faith in God. And I have a question for you. Why did Abram's faith fail? Why did he stumble in unbelief here? What was the problem? Why was he afraid? Let me hear from you. Why, why did he stumble in, in, in his faith? Why was he afraid? Lack of trust. Why was he lacking trust? Ah, who said that? Nathan. Uh, my boy. My boy. Uh, Father's Day. <laughs> Uh, he did not know 
God well. He did not know God's person well. He still thought his plans were better than God's plans. And if you are taking notes, you might want to write this down. Our faith grows only by knowing God's person. God's person. Our faith in God is progressive. We learn to trust God as we grow in our knowledge of who God is personally. I want you to know, faith does not come from having head knowledge about God. Faith comes from having heart knowledge about God. From knowing his person. That is how our faith grows. And there is a big difference. Abram does not know God very well yet. And therefore when trial comes, he fails. But God is building Abram. God is making some things revealed to Abram that he will see, hey, your plan isn't so good. My plan is always better. Abram is learning who God is and how good God is to him and how faithful God is. And in due time, Abram's faith will be so steadfast that when God says, offer your son as a sacrifice, Abraham is willing to do it because he knows God has promised him that through this son, this promise will be fulfilled and that God will resurrect him from the dead because that promise has not been fulfilled yet. And he will be a pillar of faith. But Abram's not there yet. There is a great danger of coming to church. There is a great danger in religion when we start choosing to know about God instead of knowing God's heart, knowing God's person. The religious leaders in Jesus' day knew a lot about God. They had devoted their lives to studying the Bible. But when God stood in front of them, they did not recognize him and they wanted to kill him. And Jesus would say to those religious people, you search the scriptures. This is verbatim. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have life. And these are they that testify of me, Jesus speaking. But you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. You want knowledge about God, but you don't want the person of God, Jesus is saying. And it is so important. I want you to know, as we are in church today, our goal in this Bible study is not to be smarter about the Bible. Our goal in Bible study is not beefing up our spiritual resume. Our goal in Bible study is not growing in knowledge so we can lord our knowledge over others and win arguments when it comes to theological discussions. Our goal in Bible study today is not earning spiritual brownie points so we can earn God's favor. Our goal in Bible study is to see through the pages of the Bible. See through the story of Abraham and look into and get a glimpse of the person of Jesus Christ. So that knowing him, my heart will be transformed. My life will be transformed. And that is the purpose of our study. That we might know him. 
And if you make this your goal when you're reading the Bible, I want you to know something. You will experience radical spiritual growth. Jesus will be real to you. He will be your master passion. And he will be your first love. And that first love will be burning bright at 10 years in faith journey, at 20 years in your faith journey, at 33 years in your faith journey. That first love will still be burning bright because he's amazing. And when you look through the pages and you see his face, your soul is filled with awe. There is nothing like him. And when trial comes your way, because life is hard, you will make it through the trial and you will thrive in your faith because your eyes are on the God that you know. But Abraham is not there yet. And he stumbles in unbelief and he flounders and and is staggering as he clumsily tries to lead his wife and his company. And uh, his lack of faith is going to cause him major problems down the road uh, for one in his marriage. How do you think Sarah's going to feel about all this? Yeah, it's not going to be a good night, right? Uh, There's going to be some trouble. Uh, Secondly, uh, going down to Egypt, we're going to read in weeks to come, he picks up some problems uh, named Hagar that will uh, follow him and plague him. Uh, So this was not a good idea. There's a price to pay whenever we walk away from God's best. Uh, Verse 14, are you there? Um, So it was, when Abram came into Egypt, that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. Wow. Verse 15, the princes of Pharaoh also saw her, And they commended her to Pharaoh. Here's what happened. Wow, what a looker. Who is this woman? Oh, she's from this area over here. And she's with this man here. His name's Abram. That's her brother. She's single. And she's very wealthy. And she's... And the uh, Pharaoh's uh, servants come to Pharaoh and say, Boss... You're going to like this one, man. Beautiful woman coming in, very wealthy, and she's single, right? And so they tell Pharaoh that. And look at this. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. Ouch. Into his harem. Ouch. And he treated Abram well for her sake. Hey, buddy. Yeah, man, like your sister, right? Uh, And he had sheep, this is Abram, he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, uh, male and female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Uh, The fact that he had camels shows how extensive his wealth was. A camel was a rich man's uh, um, animal, and it would be like having Penske rent-a-truck, right? Uh, That was like a moving company in the Middle East, right? And uh, you'd have to rent a camel if you wanted to move. And, and uh, he had camels for rent, right? He was wealthy. Imagine this huge entourage, at least 500 people coming in. And this is what, what's going on. Uh, by the way, as a sidebar, you know I love archaeology. And uh, archaeology, once again, verifying the Bible's accuracy, there is a tomb in Egypt called the Benai Hassan tomb. Uh, It's about 160 miles south of Cairo, 
And uh, there is a painting inside that tomb of a wealthy Semitic group coming in and bringing gifts to Pharaoh. The date of this is over 4,000 years old. It goes back to over 2000 BC. And may I tell you, it is a picture, perhaps, of even what we're reading. Just amazing. This is the picture inside that uh, Benai Hassan tomb. Uh, and I know you can't tell a lot from this because that's a 4,000-year-old picture. But look in the very bottom right-hand corner. Can you see that guy that is three times as big as all the other people? Who might that be? Pharaoh, right. Now, if you look at this middle row, let's go to the next slide. If you look at this middle row, you'll see there are some people, they're very wealthy, and they're bringing lots of gifts to Pharaoh. Uh, now, this is hard to see because it's a 4,000-year-old painting on a, in a tomb, but artists have redone uh, the picture here, and this is what the artist's rendition is. Pharaoh would be off your screens over to the right. These two guys here that are darker skin, they would be Pharaoh's servants, and these lighter skinned people would be the Semitic people would be the Jewish people. You can see they're dressed wealthily. They have a different look to them than the Jewish people. And they're bringing all kinds of gifts to Pharaoh. Uh, in, the, in the painting, in the tomb, uh, there are 37 people, including four women and three children. And they're all bearing gifts, bringing them to Pharaoh. You can see they have musical instruments. They're dressed really well. The women are beautiful. The men are handsome, wealthy, and bearing gifts. Uh, very interesting. Once again, the Bible uh, uh, just being validated uh, of its accuracy by archaeology. But that's a sidebar. Sarah is given over to Abram's, excuse me, to Pharaoh's harem. And this is the consequence of Abram's sin. Uh, why would Sarai be so desirable to Pharaoh? Well, she's really wealthy. She's really good looking. And she would be a, polit a political advantage. She would be a political alliance with the Chaldeans. And so this is a win-win for Pharaoh. So he treats Abram really well because of this. And Abram's given a place of honor. And the plan is working perfectly. Except, except what? Except Sarai is going to be sleeping with the Pharaoh. And here we see Abram has got himself in a big mess. And may I, may I reveal to you what this reveals? Abram is not even remotely valuing what? The Abrahamic covenant that God made with him. You see, it is through this woman that God is going to bring the promised lineage. And now if she sleeps with a Pharaoh, what happens to the Abrahamic covenant? broken. And here we see once again a spiritual origin behind even the temptation that Abraham is dealing with. God wants, excuse me, Satan wants to break this covenant. And if she sleeps with Pharaoh, the covenant is broken. Uh, God's plans for Abram are so much bigger than Abram can grasp. 
Abram, if you only knew what you were doing right now, you would change your path. God's plans for you are so big. And can I say something? The same is true for us. The same is true for us. Abraham is oblivious to the spiritual significance of the ramifications of his little lie. Isn't that amazing? And if we could only tell Abraham, Abraham, be faithful to God. Walk in God's ways. Don't give up. If we could only tell him how different it might have been for Abram. And this is why we need Christian community. Why we need Christian fellowship. Why we need small group discipleship. Why we need church. Left alone, Abram uh, would have destroyed his marriage and his relationship with God and the Abrahamic covenant and a lot of people's lives. He would have destroyed it all. But I have some good news. He's not left alone. God is a mighty savior. And let's wrap up, let's close, let's finish with what God does here to save Abram from total ruin. Look at verse 17, are you there? But, but the Lord, aren't you glad for those words? But the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house. You might want to circle that. Plagued Pharaoh, not just Pharaoh, but what else? His entire court with great plagues. Why? Because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Wow. What was the plague? What was the plague that God plagued Pharaoh and his house with? We don't know for sure. Some scholars think it was by the, by the language, it's a stretch. They think it was some kind of really bad skin rash. I don't know. Uh, we don't know for sure. I personally believe, and this is a little bit PG-13, so bear with me. I personally believe God plagued the Pharaoh's house with impotency. And that is not just a random guess. There is biblical validation to it. In about 25 years, Abraham's going to make a mistake again. This time not with an Egyptian king, but with a Philistine king. The Philistine's king... Uh, his name, Abimelech. And once again, he's going to say the same stupid mistake. A dog repeat, returns to its vomit. The same stupid mistake, he's going to say it's his sister to get out of trouble. And Abim King Abimelech is going to take Sarai, uh, her name's Sarah at this point, into his harem as well. And God does something very interesting. This is Genesis 20 on your screens. Let me hear you read this. God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Let's pause there. He's talking to King Abimelech, the king of the Philistines, right? Verse 4. But Abimelech had not come near her, hadn't slept with her yet. And he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Lord, I didn't sleep with her, he's saying, right? Paraphrase. Verse 5. Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. What is Abimelech saying? I didn't know, right? And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart. For I withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. 
Uh, this was God's sovereign protection and uh, uh, all God's doing, right? Uh, we don't know for certain, but we do know this. All of Pharaoh's court knew it was because of Sarah and knew it was because of Abram. Look at verse 18. And Pharaoh called Abram and said to him, what is this you have done to me? Why did you tell me, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you lie to me and say she's your, she's your sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. And here we have a tragic story. We have God's man bringing a black eye to God. God's man looks like worse than the rest of the world. God's man looks no better than the rest of the world. God's man caught in a lie. What's his lie? Protecting himself, elevating himself, and throwing his wife under the bus for his own selfish gain. Uh, that looks pretty nasty. Verse 20, so Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, all of his court, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Um, here's what's interesting is that even though Abram was lying and not valuing the covenant God made with him, not walking in faith, God blessed him and protected him and preserved him, even when he was a lying sinner. And here's the last point I want to leave you with. God's blessings come to us, not by merit, but by God's grace. God's blessings come to us by grace, not by our merit. I want you to know God did not disown Abraham. He did not say our covenant is off. He did not say uh, you've blown it and no soup for you. Because the promises of God depend on God's righteousness, not our own. And aren't you thankful for that? In a similar way, our salvation is established by Jesus' righteousness, not our own. And we are secure in Jesus Christ. And if today you are beaten down by the weight of your sins, if you are so sorrowful for your lapse of faith, if you feel like, Lord, I did it again. I know I told you five times I wasn't going to, and I've done it again. I've made a mess of this, or I've made a mess of this. If you are weary and beaten down, I want you to rejoice. You can be exceedingly glad. Your righteousness is a free gift through Jesus Christ. And God's promises to you are all dependent upon his goodness, not yours. God's righteousness is given to you by his righteousness, not yours. And you are secure in him. Amen? Amen. If God's righteousness comes to us by grace, and it does... Why even try? Why even try? Here's why. Because our hearts have been touched by the love of God. And we simply want to love him in return. Jesus told us in John 14, 21, he said, He that has my commandments and keeps them. He that knows my word and keeps them. He's the one that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him. 
and I will manifest myself to him. We'll have an intimate relationship. We do it because we love God. Not for blessing, not for anything else. Yes, tons of blessings flow, but we do it because we love God. Secondly, I want you to know, we do it, uh, there are some blessings that can only come to us when we are walking in obedience. You see, right now, was Abraham a light into the world? No. He was a bad light to the world. Did Abraham reveal the glory of Jesus Christ? The glory of God? No. He looked like a lying sinner like anybody else. And there are some blessings that can only come to us when we are abiding in faith in Jesus Christ. Abiding in faith in God. And even though Abraham stumbles and falls, God is bringing him to that end. And God will finish his good work because he's a good shepherd. And he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And this is his work. He's building his man. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.